name's Jamie, one of the pastors here. Hope you're doing well. Um, hope that the tryptophan from all of the leftover turkey sandwiches is out of your system by this point so that you can actually engage uh, in an alert way. I don't know about you. My goal was to fit into these pants this morning, and if I could do that, I would have known that I've made good decisions this week. So I'm feeling really good about how this week went as we kind of move into the post-Thanksgiving Sunday. Um, if, you're, if you're joining us this morning for the first time, we're, we're currently working our way through uh, the book of Hebrews in a series entitled Jesus is Greater. And I think that's a, a more than appropriate series title. Week in and week out, if you've been around, you've seen this. We've, we've seen Jesus put on full display as the most supremely valuable treasure in all the universe over and over and over again. The author of Hebrews says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of God's nature. He's the creator of all things. He's the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. He's the one who made purification for sins through the shedding of his own blood. The one who, who's seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. He's the, the rightful heir of all things. He's God's ultimate and final message to mankind. He's superior to the angels, superior to fallen man, superior to Moses. He's the greater and ultimate high priest. He mediates a greater covenant. We'll get into that even this morning. He offers a greater sacrifice, namely himself, in a greater tabernacle, heaven above. The author of Hebrews essentially wants us to behold Jesus in such a way that we feel the weightiness of who he is and what he's accomplished and are affected and changed by that beholding. That by fixing our gaze on Jesus, we might find our confidence in him strengthened, that the steadfastness of our hope fortified, if you've been around for the majority of this series, I apologize for what I'm about to do because I'm going to bring in an illustration that I've, I've thrown out there more than half a dozen times at this point. But if you're new, I think this is helpful to, to hear, to engage with as you think about this book of the Bible that we as a church are working through. Um, a couple months ago, my family and I went to the beach together and on a Wednesday evening, midway through the week, my oldest daughter and I were walking on the beach and all of a sudden, she looked up in the sky and just started screaming at the top of her lungs, Daddy, it's the moon. It's the moon, Daddy. And she had never seen the moon hanging from the cosmos in that way before. She'd seen it in books. She'd seen it on TV screens, but, but never hanging from the sky like stage lighting for this divine, redemptive historical drama that you and I are a part of. And so she lost her mind that night. It took everything we had to actually get her to sleep because she was so excited. She was she was caffeinated by God's creation, essentially. And so the next morning, we woke up. It was Thursday. We went about our business, and that evening, we went on our, our nightly walk on the beach, and we were out there for maybe a minute or two, and, and then I hear it all over again. Daddy, Daddy, it's the moon. It's the moon, Daddy, with the same kind of passion and enthusiasm that she had brought to the table the night before. And, and to me, I'm thinking, well, we just did that, so do we really need to do that on repeat? That was Wednesday night, baby. And for her, you know, it was as if she was saying, no, today's a new day, so I'm going to behold the moon in all of its splendor and glory today, just like I did yesterday, and bask in it. That's what the author of Hebrews is going after. He, he wants us to see the splendor, the glory, the majesty, the beauty of Jesus Christ in such a way that as long as it's called today that we might declare, isn't he glorious? Look, behold, the superior son of God. This morning... Just in case you're not yet mesmerized, the author of Hebrews is going to put one more facet of Jesus' beauty and sufficiency on display. And so with that being said, if you have a Bible, you can open up to Hebrews chapter 8. That's where we'll be this morning. If you don't have a Bible, 
There should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage. If you don't own a Bible or maybe have a translation that's a little bit difficult to follow, please take one of those Bibles as the church's gift to you. We'll call it an early Christmas present. Let me do this. Let me just pray for us and we'll go ahead and we'll jump in and we'll get to work. God, thank you for the book of Hebrews, for a beautiful letter that declares over and over again from a variety of angles the excellency, the beauty, the sufficiency, the glory, the splendor of Jesus Christ. I pray this morning that as we look at yet another angle on Jesus' superiority and beauty, that we would find our confidence in him strengthened that we would find the steadfastness of our hope bolstered, that we would find ourselves, like my daughter on the beach, declaring, isn't he glorious? And declaring to everyone around us, behold, look, look at him. Isn't he beautiful? Isn't he glorious? Isn't he mesmerizing? Jesus, mesmerize us with who you are and what you've accomplished for us through your word this morning by your spirit. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So last week, if you were around, we we spent some time talking about what makes Jesus a superior high priest to the Levitical priests of the Old Testament. Um, In fact, if you read the book of Hebrews, you'll see over and over again that the author of Hebrews keeps going back to these Old Testament institutions, people, and offices to try to show that all of those things were a shadow pointing to a greater reality and fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And so back in chapter 7, he made the argument that Jesus is a superior priest to all of the priests that you see when you read your Old Testament books of the Bible. And there were really two major points to the argument. Number one, every Levite priest had to hand off the priesthood to the next one in line because every one of them died. Not so with Jesus, the author of Hebrews argues. You don't have to worry about Jesus dying in the midst of ministering for you in heavenly places. He died and rose from the dead never to die again. But secondly, he argued in chapter 7 that every Levite priest had to offer sacrifices over and over again, including sacrifices for their own sins. Again, not so with Jesus. Jesus doesn't have to offer sacrifices for his own sins because according to the the end of chapter 7, he's holy. He's innocent. He's unstained. He's separated from sinners. His once-for-all sacrifice on our behalf is the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. We'll get there when we get to chapter 10 a few weeks from now. But now in chapter 8, the author of Hebrews is going to continue to make the argument that Jesus is greater. And he's going to do so by way of another contrast or two. For one, he's going to contrast the earthly tabernacle in the Old Testament with the heavenly tabernacle in which Jesus ministers. And then secondly, he's going to contrast the old covenant established in Moses' day with the new covenant established in Jesus' blood. So we pick up the argument in chapter 8, verse 1, where he says this. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. This is... This is essentially the thesis statement of the book of Hebrews. So if you've missed out on much of this series leading up to this point, you've come at a really, really good time. Here's the summary of everything you've missed. Right here in the center of this book of the Bible, the author of Hebrews shares the ultimate point of everything that he's been saying for seven chapters. Namely, 
that Jesus, as exalted high priest, lives to minister for the church in heavenly places. Remember, the church is, is the new wilderness wandering people on pilgrimage toward the promised land. If you're a Christian, that's you. We are in a new wilderness wandering season in the, in the life of God's people. And the beautiful hope of us getting there to the promised land is that Jesus, as high priest of heaven, never stops pleading our case. He never stops interceding on our behalf to the Father. We have what we need, the author of Hebrews is arguing. We need a high priest whose sacrifice for sin is sufficient um, and who pleads our case to God. We have both in Jesus. Um, his once-for-all sacrifice is so incredibly sufficient. We talked about this a number of times in this series, that Jesus is seated at the Father's right hand, that, that his sitting down communicates the finality of his sacrifice, that there are no more sacrifices for sin to be made. When he said it is finished, he meant every one of those three words that came out of his mouth. Secondly, Jesus pleads our case on the basis of his blood. That we, We've sung it week in and week out throughout this series. Before the throne of God, we, have, we the redeemed, we have a strong, a perfect plea a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for us. If you're a Christian, that's you. That Jesus is a minister for the church in heavenly places. When we read the gospel accounts, think about this. We see Jesus ministering to multitudes of people, right? You see it in story after story. You see him washing the disciples' feet. You see him feeding the hungry on a number of occasions. You see him healing the sick. You see him raising the dead. You see him forgiving sin. You see him in John 17 praying for the church. Here in Hebrews chapter 8, the author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus' ministry did not end when he ascended to the Father's right hand. That the same Jesus, when you read the gospel accounts, this should transform the way that you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The same Jesus that we see ministering to and caring for so many people in those gospel accounts continues to minister today. He ministers on behalf of the redeemed. If you're a Christian, that's you. He goes on to say in verse 3, For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for the priest also to, to have something to offer. This priest, Jesus, that if he truly is a priest, he must have something to offer. The Old Testament high priest offered sacrifices to the Lord over and over again. Jesus, as we've seen and will continue to see, offers himself as an unblemished sacrifice on behalf of sinners. He goes on in verse 4. He says, Now if, it were on, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, Jesus, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. Going back to last week, according to the law, Jesus could not have been a priest here on earth. Priests came from the tribe of Levi. Jesus came from the tribe of Judah. The law would have disqualified Jesus from taking on the role of high priest within the Old Testament Levitical system. But this only helps to further the argument that the author of Hebrews is making that Jesus is greater, that his priesthood is not of this world. He ministers for the church in the true tabernacle of heaven. And he goes on to say it this way in verse 5. He says, they, meaning the priests of old, serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, the tabernacle uh, in the wilderness, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. That when Moses met with God on Mount Sinai, he didn't just receive the Ten Commandments. He was given a pattern of the heavenly temple to replicate in the building of the tabernacle. 
You see it in a couple of places in in the book of Exodus. Chapter 25, verse 9, God tells Moses, Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, so you shall make it. Exodus 25, 40, And see that you make them, them meaning all of the things associated with the tabernacle, after the pattern for them which is being shown you on the mountain. Exodus 26.30, then you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it that you were shown on the mountain. You, you have this description in the Old Testament of the tabernacle for the wilderness wandering Israelites. And it's pretty incredible. That, that I think would be a really good homework assignment actually this week. To go back to the Old, Old Testament and read the description of the Old Testament tabernacle. The beauty, the, the majesty, the attention to detail. It's fascinating. And what the author of Hebrews is telling us is that that tabernacle that you read about in the Old Testament is a mere copy and shadow of a greater heavenly reality. Let me just share with you some words that a close friend of mine recorded in an attempt to capture the essence of these verses that we're in right now. He says this. He says, in 1997, the New York, New York Hotel and Casino opened on the Las Vegas Strip in Paradise, Nevada. Maybe some of you actually stayed at this hotel. He says, its architecture resembles famous New York City sites, including the Empire State Building, the Grand Central Terminal, and Times Square. A replica of the Statue of Liberty stands out front. You can see it in the picture behind me. Even the hotel's lounges and meeting rooms are named after New York City neighborhoods. Every detail points to the Big Apple. Despite a pattern of similarities, visiting the famous hotel in Las Vegas is not the same as experiencing the real-life hustle and bustle of New York City. If you've been there, you know that to be true. The sheer size and grandeur, he says, of the real city is lost in the copy. The block facades of the fake don't inspire awe like the bright lights and shiny glass of the authentic. Besides, the Las Vegas Strip is a cheap substitute for the real people, history, art, and culture that give New York City its charm. The replica simply doesn't do justice to the original. He goes on to say, Hebrews 8 is written to a people who have spent generations in a world of replicas and copies, building their life and identity around a shadow and a hint of something real to come. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament prophets and priests could only dream to be true. He is the high priest we have always needed. His offering brings a complete and everlasting forgiveness. His dwelling is not in a tent or a temple made by human hands, but a throne in heaven at the right hand of the Father from whence he intercedes for us. He is the mediator of a new covenant of grace, far surpassing what the old covenant could accomplish. In Christ All things are made new, rendering the old order obsolete. And he closes with these words. He says, The author of Hebrews invites God's people to check out of the hotel and move into the real-life city that we were created for. The replica no longer makes sense now that the real thing is readily accessible. While the Statue of Liberty on the New York skyline has represented new hope for millions of immigrants in our nation's history, the cross of Christ promises something even better. God's presence and power for sinners and sufferers in this world in the age to come. I could not say that better myself. The the book of Hebrews presents a real challenge for us as we engage with it. I don't know if you've thought about this, if you've been around for this series much, but the author keeps describing realities that exceed our ability to imagine. 
Going back to last week, chapter 7, we're told that Jesus intercedes on our behalf to the Father. He pleads our case on the basis of his blood. Wouldn't you like to know what that conversation looks like? Wouldn't you like to be a fly on the wall for that relational connectivity? I mean, we know theologically that he's pleading our case on the basis of his blood, but what does that conversation, that dialogue actually look like? I would love to be infused into that and see that uh, visual on display. Same thing's true here of chapter eight. I'd love to explain the heavenly reality of which the Old Testament tabernacle is, is nothing more than a copy and a shadow, but how do I explain something that's more glorious than my own imagination? I mean, the, the best I can possibly do for you is to give you a couple of glimpses that we see in Scripture. In Revelation chapter 4, we're given a picture of the throne of heaven where John says, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their head. That's the throne of heaven. Revelation 5 gives us a picture of worship in heaven. Listen to these words from John. He says, Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. What else are you going to say, right? And the elders fell down and worshiped. I think the point is that the Old Testament Levitical priests never experienced anything like that. Like what you read in Revelation chapters 4 and 5. They certainly entered behind the curtain into the most holy place in the tabernacle and the temple to meet with God, but they never experienced this scene that you see in Revelation chapter 4. They never experienced this scene that you see in Revelation chapter 5. But the point of the, the book of Hebrews, and particularly chapter 8, is that Jesus has, on the basis of his sufficient sacrifice, the shedding of his own blood, Jesus, the greatest high priest the world has ever known, going back to chapter 7, has entered into the real heavenly presence of God. The heavenly tabernacle in which Jesus ministers is greater than the earthly tabernacle of the Old Testament. Kent Hughes, in his commentary, I was reading that in preparation for this sermon, he says this about the heavenly reality, the heavenly temple in which Jesus ministers. He says this, he says, the substance, the ultimate reality of the tabernacle is where Jesus is, at the right hand of God. This being so, and coupled with the dizzying glory of the Lamb, I like those words, surrounded by the four living creatures and the 24 elders amidst rainbows of praise, what, he asks, what must the real sanctuary and his priestly ministry be like? He says, imagine the multifaceted shadow of the glorious tabernacle, the Old Testament tabernacle, and then imagine the ultimate heavenly reality. If such was the shadow, what must be the substance? 
Do not fail to employ your imagination, he says, because however grand and wondrous your imagining is, it will not exceed the reality of Christ's heavenly tabernacle and priesthood. So I think part of the takeaway from Hebrews chapter 8, part of the homework for us is to go and to think on these things until our minds are a little blown by it. Jesus is the greater high priest who ministers in the better and more glorious tabernacle. That's the first contrast. But he also argues in Hebrews 8 that Jesus mediates a better covenant. He says it this way, beginning in verse 7. He says, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Remember, if the, going back to last week, if the Levitical priesthood could fix our problem, we, did, we would not need another uh, better, more superior priest. Similarly, if the covenant that God made with Moses could fix our problem, we wouldn't need a better covenant. The old covenant itself wasn't without fault, he's saying. It was always meant to give way to something better. Again, this is why I think the Jesus Storybook Bible is, is one of the most helpful tools that you can probably grab because it helps to, to kind of show how everything is interconnected, how when you leave the garden in Genesis 3 with the promise of a coming hero who would rescue us from sin, and you read the rest of your Old Testament, those stories are not just loosely piecemealed together. They're all telling one overarching story of redemption with Jesus as the hero of the whole thing so that when he shows up on the scene, when you get to the New Testament, he's the fulfillment of everything that you've been reading for those first 39 books of the Bible. That's what the author of Hebrews is arguing. The Old Covenant was meant to give way to something far greater, just like the Old Testament priesthood and the Old Testament tabernacle. That the Old Covenant could not bring about perfection because the human parties involved in that covenant were covenant-breaking sinners. Look at the reference to Jeremiah 31, picking up in verse 8 here. He says, For he, God, finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Again, we read about this back in chapter 3 of the book of Hebrews, that the post-Exodus wilderness-wandering generation of Israel failed to keep up her end of the bargain. The people hardened their hearts in rebellion and they died in the desert. They, they didn't make it to the promised land, most of them. That God is not the problem. God's covenants are not the problem. Covenant-breaking human beings like you and me are the problem. The old covenant couldn't make good on its promises because of the, the covenant-breaking nature of human hearts. We need a better covenant. We need a, a covenant keeper. And so God promised in Jeremiah 31 to establish just that. Look at verse 10. He says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Pretty glorious promises in these verses. God promises, I will write my laws on minds and hearts, not on tablets of stone. 
And we're not talking about scripture memory here. Be, to be sure, the Pharisees could school every single one of us in a good old-fashioned Bible drill, right? In, in the language of Hebrews 13, we'll get there soon enough, what, what he's saying here, what we're talking about, is God equipping us with every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Heart, hearts of stone transformed, uh, replaced with hearts of flesh, the transforming power of the Holy Spirit at work within us. He promises, God promises, I will be your God and you will be my people. You will truly know me, the one who created you and rescued you. That, that part of this list of promises reminds me of Revelation chapter 21, verse 3, where John says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. That that language of being God's people and God himself being our God has everything to do with dwelling with him, with his presence among us, with us being in deep, relational, intimate dwelling with the God who created and redeemed us. Remember the loss of intimacy in the garden in Genesis 3? Adam and Eve hiding among the trees, running away like a couple of fugitives? What the author of Hebrews is saying here is in Christ, we don't have to run. In Christ, you don't have to hide. I don't know what that looks like for you, but I would venture to say that for a lot of us, there's this default mechanism that we, we revert to where we think we have to run from God, where we think that we have to, to cover ourselves in proverbial fig leaves to make ourselves look better in the eyes of God and other people. We don't have to do that. We are God's forever people. He is our forever God. We can set the fig leaves aside. There's freedom in what the author of Hebrews is saying here in chapter eight. And he goes on to heap promise on top of promise. God promises, I will forgive all of your sin and will remember it no more. This is the promise that most significantly relates to what the author of Hebrews has been arguing for seven chapters thus far. Under the old covenant, sins were never completely forgiven. They were, they were passed over, waiting for and pointing to true forgiveness in Jesus' sacrificial death. You can read about that in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, God passing over former sins. The author of Hebrews is referencing Jeremiah 31 here to show us that in Christ, the, for, the fullness of forgiveness and mercy are ours. It's not partial forgiveness, it's, it's full. It's full forgiveness, it's full mercy. Notice that, Notice that when you look at verses 10 and 12, the author of Hebrews, I, I just did more than what he does. He doesn't so much as unpack a single phrase in that prophecy that he, he references. You notice that? He just lets the words speak for themselves. He allows the contrast of the old and the new to do its own talking. He expects the promises themselves to stir up something in the hearts of his audience. So I think a question for us would be, well, what about me? What response do these promises stir within me? We'll talk about that in community groups this week. If you're not in a group, I would encourage you to, to get connected this week um, so that we can flesh this out uh, in, a, in a format where dialogue can actually happen. But think about the promises here. A heart of flesh, the indwelling third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, the intimate presence and knowledge of God, Ultimate and everlasting forgiveness of sin. Those are 
quite remarkable promises if you slow down and sit with them just long enough. Verse 13, he closes out this chapter saying this. In speaking of a new covenant, he, Jesus, makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. That the old covenant was a shadow of a greater reality that would come in Jesus. And make no mistake about it, it would come at great cost. Namely, Jesus' broken body and shed blood. Which is why, in the institution of the Lord's Supper, you get this language. Paul says it this way. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 26, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, listen to these words, This cup is the new covenant. There's Hebrews 8 language. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That that part of what we're meant to get uh, implicitly uh, by way of Hebrews chapter 8 is that Jesus was the perfect covenant keeper, living the life that you and I could never live. It's part of what makes the new covenant glorious. Jesus is not a covenant-breaking rebel. He's a covenant-keeping savior. He lived the life we could never live. He died the death that we deserve to die, the curse for covenant-breaking on our behalf, in our place, as our substitute. That Jesus is the means by which God can simultaneously punish sin and forgive sinners. Isn't the gospel glorious? You and I, we couldn't keep the old covenant. So Jesus established a new one in his blood. I don't know what you would say as you look at Hebrews chapter 8, but, but my response, thanks be to God for sending his son to die in the place of covenant-breaking rebels like me. And now, as his redeemed, all of the benefits of the new covenant are mine. And if you're part of the redeemed, all of those promises that you read about in verses 10 through 12 are yours for the taking. We mustn't try to mix the old with the new. We're under a superior covenant established by the blood of Jesus, our superior priest. And so we have an opportunity this morning to to declare the sufficiency and beauty of the new covenant along with the sufficiency and beauty of the one who established that covenant in sacrificial death on our behalf. In other words, the author of Hebrews, like my daughter on a beach, is saying, look again at Jesus. Isn't he glorious? Isn't he beautiful? Isn't he worthy of beholding and basking in and being changed by and affected by the beholding? As the author of Hebrews hope would be the response of his original audience, we have an opportunity this morning to declare where else can we go? We found our hope. His name is Jesus. In a moment, we're going to shift into the the remainder of our service, which is kind of an infusion of a a partaking of the Lord's Supper and singing and prayer. And so uh, we want to give you space throughout the remainder of the service uh, when when you're uh, ready to to come and receive of the elements. We take the bread here, representing the broken body of Jesus. We dip it in the cup, representing his shed blood. If you're a Christian, that meal is for you. It's an opportunity to proclaim Jesus' death. So it's a proclamation of the gospel visibly. 
for people looking in, maybe even in our midst who are not followers of Jesus this morning. There's something missional about communion, but it's also an opportunity to remember. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. And this morning, because of the unique connection of what Jesus says in the institution of the Lord's Supper, this new covenant established in his blood, as you, as you prepare to come receive of the bread and the cup this morning, you have an opportunity to connect the dots to those glorious promises. We can remember Jesus and bask yet again and, and express our deep gratitude that he kept the covenant that we could not keep, that he's a covenant-keeping Savior, and we can bask in all the promises that are ours for the taking because of who he is and what he's done for us. That we can functionally, practically remember in that way this morning as we come and receive of, uh, and partake of the Lord's Supper. At, uh, during this time, the remainder of the service, there will also be people in the back of the auditorium. Uh, so if you want someone to pray with you or for you, you can go back there and there will be people available to, to do that. And then we're also, during this time, going to sing. We're going to sing to our covenant-keeping Savior, Jesus and, and marvel at the beauty of who he is and all the promises that are ours because of what he has accomplished on our behalf.